Salo Falava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. It's all about the very survival of our planet and people. Will the ambitious climate commitment from the shipping industry happen? Also, poverty in Papua New Guinea worsens. And later... What they have done for, for themselves and for the team and for their country and their families back at home. We check in with the Cook Islands women's football team. With the curtain set to fall on the International Maritime Organization's Climate Summit on Friday UK time, it's unknown whether the talks will deliver an ambitious climate outcome. Whatever the conclusion, Pacific nations have made their presence felt. They've been motivated and pushed for global shipping to become fossil fuel free. But the negotiations have also put a spotlight on Pacific countries pushing for full decarbonisation of shipping and the introduction of a carbon tax, and the position of the Pacific Islands Forum at the IMO. Calvin Anthony is in London and filed this story. This is the sound of delegates trying to decide the best way to align global shipping with the Paris Agreement temperature goal of 1.5 degrees. IMO Secretary General Kitak Lim says the 80th session of the Marine Environment Protection Committee, or MEPC, is the organization's response to the global climate crisis. His message is backed up by the UN chief Antonio Guterres. Humanity is in dangerous waters on climate, but the decisions you take over the coming days could help us chart a safer course. But as the meeting enters its final stretch, the feeling within the walls of the London-based UN agency is one of compromise for the self-organized Pacific group nicknamed the Six-Pack who have been flying the region's flag at the IMO since 2015, a lot is at stake. They've been lobbying for the maritime industry to fully decarbonize by 2050 and for the adoption of a universal carbon levy from Tuvalu. We have traveled far to come in person to this meeting to impress upon you that the outcome this week is a fundamental and determining the fate of my country. To Kiribati. It is not all about science, no economics. It's all about the very survival of our planet and people. It is time to walk the talk. Vanuatu. Ignoring climate change impacts on the most vulnerable is not an option. States are going to have to live up to their responsibilities and international organizations up to their mandated obligations. And the Marshall Islands. We can choose to act decisively to set a hard 1.5 commensurate agenda or we can choose to kick the can. We, the smallest and most vulnerable nations in the world, have chosen not to kick the can. The six-pack's position is clear. They want a just and equitable transition that leaves no country behind. It means adopting technical and economic measures, a difficult but necessary step to set shipping on a better, cleaner path. It also means setting science-based targets to start reducing greenhouse gas emissions starting as soon as 2030. Marshall Islands Special Envoy to the IMO, Elbon Ishoda, says targets are meaningless without the right action. We need the right measures to get us there. If the IMO does not act to put effective measures in place, we will see the continued development of a patchwork of inequitable regional mechanisms favoring the largest shipping and trading nations at the expenses of the countries like mine. The right measures, according to the six-pack group, isn't net zero, 
but zero emissions, which means a total stop to digging for fossil fuels and ships paying 100 US dollars for every ton of carbon they emit. The revenue generated is expected to be used for an equitable transition for all, but with the majority dedicated to the most climate vulnerable nations. The challenge with the levy, as I understand it from others, is just the word levy. The word levy implies that you know you're paying something, and developing countries are of the view that they shouldn't pay because they didn't contribute. Resistance is coming from several South American nations, China and others, but also from Australia and the Cook Islands, which is the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum. In May, Cook Islands Prime Minister Mark Brown addressed the G7 summit as forum chair. Mr. Brown had said then, quote, any funds raised through a punitive levy now being considered at the IMO to be imposed onto shipping must not come at a cost to small island developing states. That position was reiterated by the Cook Islands at the MEPC-80 on Tuesday. The imposition of an economic measure on shipping, such as the punitive levy currently under consideration here at the IMO, must not come at a cost to the SIDS. It's a view completely opposite to that of the six-pack. Some Pacific sources privately expressed disappointment in the forum's position. One source told RNZ Pacific it said the forum isn't supporting the six-pack because it's about the Pacific people, their voices and islands. They say it also signals the Pacific is not always united on all fronts. But Vanuatu's climate change minister Ralph Regenbanu says they're not giving up. Ignoring climate change impacts on the most vulnerable is not an option. States are going to have to live up to their responsibilities and international organizations up to their mandated obligations. Meanwhile, Australia remains largely silent on the Pacific levy. A spokeswoman for the Infrastructure, Transport, Regional Development and Local Government Minister Catherine King said via statement that as an island nation where 99% of our goods are imported and exported by sea, Australia needs to carefully consider the details of any economic measures. Poverty levels in urban areas in Papua New Guinea are growing, and the National Research Institute says without jobs and opportunities, it'll only get a lot worse. Don Wiseman spoke with one of the researchers, Dr Philip Kavan, about the issue. I think anyone who's travelled through Papua New Guinea has always seen a lot of poverty, or signs of poverty. But just how, how bad is the urban poverty in Papua New Guinea now? From my own perspective, you can just see by way how people try to cushion that poverty and try to survive day by day. And you'll be surprised to find that there's a lot of street selling that is going on, street kids backing, all these kind of things is happening on the street, especially go to urban centers like, like Port Moresby. Uh, the towns and all that, you will basically see those kind of things happening and it clearly tells that it's a sign of uh, poverty. People try to survive. To a large extent, these people have drifted in from the rural areas over the last 20, 30 years or so. Have they lost connection with their home villages? Really, what is uh, happening, in my perspective, a lot of development and things, it's uh, happening in the urban centres, like infrastructure. Uh, when I say infrastructure, uh, I mean the school, health services and all that kind of thing. The basic services doesn't really reach the people in the remote areas. And so to acquire those kind of services, they migrate to the cities and towns to try to uh, get service from uh, those uh, 
uh, services that are available here in the, in the cities and towns. That, that's one of the things that caused them to migrate. So nothing interesting or things that can sort of encourage them to stay back and enjoy the services that they need uh, in the rural areas. Yes. But it doesn't quite work out that way for many, I suppose. Uh, and they don't have things like food gardens to fall back on. Yeah, they, they, they do have a food garden and all that, but uh, sometimes we get the land that is not a issue. In rural settings, each clan have their own land. And those who don't have a land, they cannot really develop and do agriculture or whatever to help themselves. And they try to look elsewhere how best they can able to uh, survive. So poverty that the National Research Institute is writing about, it's getting worse. Yeah, indeed, yes. Yeah, it is uh, getting worse. As I pointed out, poverty is, is a lack of access to economic and basic services uh, in PNG. So once that kind of services is not visibly seen at the rural areas, people flock into the uh, urban centres to try to acquire those kind of services. And also the poverty is kind of robbing people of their dignity, their potential, and in some cases their very lives in PNG. The traditional social values and king best practices of taking care of those in need are breaking down. That's one of the factors that, that is, uh, clearly stands out. Previously, you know, we are a communal type of people. We tend to support each other and look after each other's uh, basic needs and all that. But that kind of culture, that kind of practice is kind of breaking down and it's no longer very strong now. You're saying that the chances of PNG reaching the sustainable development goals and other national programs, it's less and less likely. Yes, yes. So what would be your recommendation for what should be done to overcome this problem? First of all, it's uh, jobs. Create more jobs and other means for the youth to end cares. That's number one. And number two is provision of access to land for farming. And number three is basic services, access to education, water supply, health care, transport. By that I mean roads and public transport services and markets. And number four, skills training. Provide skills training on small business management. Example like fig or poultry farms, small shops, and a support system, including access to capital and, and, and credit. And uh, lastly, social care system. Social care system for elders, uh, single parents, people with disability, and other disadvantaged groups. Those are the kind of things that can be implemented to reduce or to cushion the poverty. Yes, and I'm sure that would have a dramatic effect. I guess the thing is the lack of money, isn't it? It's the sort of move that essentially amounts to a revolution in terms of the way services and, and other things are provided for people. Do you think it's going to happen? Yes, that can happen if we're able to create more jobs and try to help the youth to be employed and they can try to do something, occupied doing something to and cares to help themselves. Otherwise, they will become a problem, which is also a problem. They go into drug and they go into rascal activities and all those kind of things, so they have to and get in doing something to help themselves. The Cook Islands women's footballers have had a fairy tale run in the Oceania Under 19 Championships, reaching the semi finals with two excellent wins. Although their run came to an end on Wednesday with a 5 0 defeat to reigning champions New Zealand, they had drawn with Tahiti and beaten Solomon Islands 1 0 and Vanuatu 2 1 in a dramatic quarter final. They now play Samoa in the third place playoff this weekend in Suva. Craig Stevens spoke to team coach Tukati Sam about the team's success. 
you reached the semi-finals uh, with two victories and a draw this week. Was that something that you expected beforehand? Um, in terms of our, like we visualized that in our heads, but uh, it came to, it just pretty much came true on the on the day. So, yeah, I guess it did. Okay. Um, um, yeah. I mean, obviously, you're disappointed with the result against New Zealand. You lost 5-0, but um, obviously New Zealand are a very good side. But, um, I mean, I, I guess that you're proud of the players' performances during the tournament? Yeah, absolutely. This whole tournament, I mean, just proud of them, what they what they have done for for themselves and for the team and for their country and their families back at home. They just, just absolutely put on great performance this whole tournament. Um, against New Zealand, yeah, they're, they're top side, quality side, and we're just looking for the third and fourth position uh, on Saturday. Okay, cool. And, and any particular highlights? Uh, I think it'll be the Vanuatu uh, game, I guess, the quarterfinals. Uh, we won 2-1. Two, two, I think that's the, that's the highlights for the tournament for us, I guess. But also, I mean, and you, you held Tahiti and they're a traditional powerhouse and also beat the Solomon Islands. So, I mean, it's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's been a good week. Yeah, and a good week. I mean, yeah, performance from the girls are just really, really good. Excellent work. Did their jobs and, yeah. All right. And did you um did you prepare Solid quite well for this competition? Yes, yes, we prepared really well. Um we train really well with the girls uh, three three times a week and games between um for this for this tournament so we did really really um I drilled them into more of the defensive side of things and as it can show during the tournament but yeah we we trained really well okay and um do you have sort of a mix of um like home based players and some who are, are based in New Zealand and possibly also Australia yeah, so we got mostly homegrown players and two from one of the outer islands and from Atsutaki and one from New Zealand, but also homegrown and one from Australia, where she's in the Queensland Academy. Um, so, yeah, that kind of boosts us up as well as a, as a team. Okay, and I, I guess you've, um, having seen the players, like, you know, for the last week, I guess you sort of, like, you think that there's certain players who will probably kick on and play for the national senior team and uh, possibly even sort of do quite well at club level overseas. Yes, or some of them already have played for the national team so and others are potential coming up upcoming so yeah there'll be um, potential be a, a spot for them in the national team in the future. Um, yeah we've got the Tahiti game, we've got a Tahiti trip to, to play a friendly with Tahiti in six weeks time so yeah, we'll be trialling out for that. That's Pacific Waves for today. In the next programme, we find out how Pacific women contribute to peacekeeping. Don't forget, you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programmes. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, it's all fast for.